Well, good morning and greetings in the worthy name of the Lord Jesus. It's a blessing to be here. I want to welcome each of you to this next part of our service where we consider God's Word. Truly, who of us would have any confidence without the Scripture, without the Scripture defining our lives and what it means, what, it, what faith looks like, what our experience in Christ looks like, um, and actually, I think we'll, we'll get into some of that here in this text of Scripture. If you would, open your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of John chapter 4. The other week when I spoke to you out of John chapter 4, I thought I was going to finish the chapter, but we ended up not finishing as we continue this look at the gospel of John from an expository consecutive approach where we go from passage to passage. We ended last time in John chapter 4, in verse 42. And so I would like to bring to your attention the, the, the end of this passage from verse 43 to 54. And I want to just recommend this portion of Scripture. When you read over this... Um, it's quite it's quite easy to say, well, what is there th- there? <laughs> but there's plenty there um, that we can, if as just like any scripture, when you begin to dig into it, you recognize, oh, God had intentions when He wrote this, <laughs> just like any other portion of His Word. So let's read John four, beginning in verse forty three. Uh, going through the end of the chapter. And let's remember that this is the, the backdrop of this the backdrop of this passage is the conversation that he just came off of uh, with the uh, Samaritans, how he ministered there for two days, and that account of his wonderful work there in uh, the little town of Sychar, where he spoke to this woman at the well and then later ministered to the city uh, in depth. Let's read John 4, verse 43 and following. Now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he... So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus again, so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea, into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, 
for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he, when he got better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we recognize that this is your, your holy word to us. We recognize that it is meant to do something to us. That it is meant to instruct us. It is meant to teach us. It is meant to exhort us and correct us. That all of your doctrine is meant to strengthen your people. And Father... We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would make this come alive for us today. That this passage would become bread for us. And we worship you uh, through the exaltation of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now I want to just point out the last verse first. Um, He says, this again is the second sign... Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, the first one is the one where he turned the water into wine that he reminds us about in verse 46. And in just in passing, the the writer, uh, the, the apostle John points us back to this other sign. He came to this city where he did this particular sign, where he had made the water wine. And then in explanation as just an ex, you know an explanation for this passage in verse 54 he says this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee and i was struck by something and i've continually pointed out this passage in the back of the book on why John wrote this passage and i find it imp- needful to do that again if not for anything else but my own instruction and truly, in, in John 20 and verse 30, it says this way, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written or recorded that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. This is the purpose of the Gospel of John, that we might understand the, um, that we might understand the identity of this somewhat strange and unusual teacher that was walking about Galilee and Judea teaching. And then he had performed these signs. Remember, John said... We know that you are, of, you are come from God, for no man can do these signs, but that he were from God. 
Now, it was interesting to me that John, there are few, there are few parables, if any, in the Gospel of John. There are the record of these seven signs, seven particular signs, maybe eight, I'm not sure now, maybe, maybe, the, maybe there's one after the resurrection that is not included in the seven. But there are specific signs given, and John is saying these signs are given for this purpose. And this word signs simply means indications. that there were certain indications included in his ministry that implied and taught something. They indicated that this man is more than just man. That these signs were written and recorded to us that we might believe that he is not just man, but that he is the Son of God. And if we miss everything else about the Gospel of John, its intent is that we understand the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. That's the intent of the Gospel of John, that we get that. And these signs were given as indications that he is more than man. But interestingly, in this passage, he has a mild rebuke for one who sought signs. Isn't that interesting? I find this a little, you might say, uncomfortable. That these signs were recorded, but then there was a slight rebuke. Except you see signs, you don't believe. So, as we look at this passage, I need to deal with the first portion of the text first. Um, the acceptance of the person and ministry of Christ is again and again highlighted in this gospel. If you think about it, and maybe I should say the reception and the rejection of the Lord Jesus is highlighted time and again in this gospel. I, I just want to point out a few of them. In verse 1 of chapter, in verse 11 of chapter 1, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. 45 and 46 of chapter 1 say this way, where Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then the gospel, through the words of Philip, say, Come and see. See, that's the word for us as well. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What would you say? We would say, Amen. It surely does. Great things have come from this man of Nazareth. The gospel calls out, come and see. Okay? 
That's what we are all the time doing when we preach the gospel. Come and see. The invitation of the gospel is that you would come and you would learn and perceive that there is great good in this man of Nazareth. So great and so good that he must be none other than divine son of God. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. Then we flip back as we think about the reception and the rejection of the Lord Jesus. The latter part of John 2, in verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did, when they saw the indications which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And then, as we remember, the very next encounter was Nicodemus, and he was told, you must be born again. A sign, seeing a sign is not going to be enough, Nicodemus. And we see that in the latter part of chapter 2. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. They 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 believed in his name, but Jesus did not believe in them. He did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in them. And then we have verse 32 of chapter 3 where it says where this is the these are the words of John the Baptist. When he said to the Jews, And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, referring to Christ, and no one receives his testimony. He goes on and says, He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. And so then we go into chapter 4. And we have this encounter with the Samaritan woman and her relationship with the city of Sychar and how that she went back and spoke. And so we have this backdrop to chapter 43 and through 46. Now after the two days he departed from there and went to Galilee... For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Well, but he was returning to his own country. You see, that was, that's the difficulty of this verse is, why does he say this and return back to his own country? I believe it is intended for us to highlight the the um, difference, for instance, if we take the latter part of chapter 2 where they had signs and wonders and they received Him because of them, I want to point out that the Samaritans believed and received Him, invited Him to stay with them for two days, and not a one sign is recorded. Have you ever noticed that? Not a sign is recorded in all of that occasion with the Samaritans in the city of Sychar. 
I think it's, it's meant to highlight that reception that they gave to him versus the Galileans in his own country. Now, there's another possibility that, uh, we, for instance, there are other scriptures that, re, that refer to this same proverb that no prophet has honor save outside of his home country. That there's no honor in his own home or his own village. And that is, that is referred to in, uh, I think it's in Matthew 13. Let me just quickly look at that. Where it is recounted there. Um, yes. In Matthew 13 and verse 53 it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Etc., etc. His mother's name is called Mary and his brothers James, Joe, Simon and Judas and his sisters. Are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So it is possible that this is simply referring to that he came to Galilee and did not go to Nazareth, which was his own country. But in the context of the acceptance of the Samaritans, I lean toward the, la- toward the, the, the first look at this, and that is, that this passage is highlighting his reception among the Samaritans and how that they received him and how that they were blessed by, by just simply you know, believing his word. Notice what they said. And many of the Samaritans in verse 39 of that city believed him because of the word of the woman. Not because of some sign that Jesus did, but rather that there was a woman who, who perceived and had, had, had experienced something. And they believed him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. Then, in verse 42, it says, They said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have, does it say, seen him? No, it says, we ourselves have heard him. We have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And now we have this profound understanding of the identity of Jesus Christ. Which is the intent of these signs that he's been, indo- he's been doing. That they would receive them. Receive him. In more ways than just for the sake of the, um, the drama or the excitement that he could produce through signs. And so we have this contrast. The Samaritans welcomed him for who he was with no benefit of signs. And as Brother Joe was speaking about faith this morning... I, I really had to think about how it relates to this passage of Scripture. And I would like to just say, the title this morning of this, of this message is The Progress of Faith. The Progress of Faith. 
Romans says that faith comes by hearing. We have, in this book though, we have the signs given, there were indications given that would cause us to believe, but it seems like in this passage it becomes clear that Christ has a greater degree of respect for those who believe because of His Word rather than the signs that He produced. That, that they, those who just followed Him for His signs and wonders, they were suspect. But those who believed Him because of His Word, they, uh, they demonstrated a genuine faith. So as we look at the rest of this passage of this nobleman and this son, this passage I would like to divide up into, as we th- into three sections as we think about the progress of faith. Number one would be the affliction. The affliction, number two, the acknowledgement, number three, the experience. And we might add a fourth one, if we would, and call it the outcome. But as we look at this nobleman's son and this account of this nobleman and how he came to Christ, I want to point out that he came to Christ in verse... um, In verse 47, but in verse 53, it seems like he truly came to Christ. Okay? In verse 53, it says, So the father knew it was at that same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. So as we consider the progress of faith here, this this even may, may we say the process of faith. This account where, in verse four, where it begins in verse 46, this narrative. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made water, wine. Actually, I had wanted verse 43. Now after two days he departed from there and went to Galilee. He is now picking up That journey that he started in verse 3, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he had this this two-day interim that now he picks back up in verse 43. He goes to Galilee, and he finds a reception in Galilee, and he, he comes to Galilee there, and the Galileans receive him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem, at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. And it's, that, it's those very same signs that, that Christ, you know, it says they believed in him, but Christ did not commit himself to them. And so now when we come to this nobleman in verse 46, the writer makes the point that it's, he is in Cana of Galilee, where he had already had this one miracle. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. So there's 15 miles between Cana of Galilee and Capernaum. Roughly 15 miles, roughly a day's journey 
It's not just an easy journey. You have to either ride a donkey or a camel or walk. And when this nobleman heard that Jesus was coming out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for the son was at the point of death. And here we see the affliction that was driving this whole encounter. There was an underlying issue, and that was that this man's dearly beloved son was at the point of death. And this need that was in this man, this great need, I, I want to make a point of this. Very few people are going to come to a source of a cure without an understanding that they're afflicted. There's, a, there's something that drives people to come to Christ. If everything is just going fine and dandy in the life of an unbeliever, you know, there's, there's oftentimes not much going on in them spiritually. But if there's an underlying issue that, that they just don't know how to handle, that drives them to their knees, and they, they, they turn to Christ, maybe there's answer here. Maybe there's a way to, maybe, maybe I can turn to Jesus and find out. And that is why we are continually presenting Christ. We, we present Christ to unbelievers. If perchance that on the day of visitation, you would turn to Christ. Because God will visit those people that He would call. He uses these afflictions as means to bring people to Him. This affliction was in a nobleman's house. And just like so many things in our lives that are beyond our control, here we have it again. Death comes calling. And when death comes calling, we... We think it's death come calling because we see the affliction and the natural progression of many afflictions that humanity has to deal with is death. And as we consider our own mortality, this affliction, we have, every one of us has it, the affliction of mortality. Let me ask you, which way are you turning? Is this affliction going to drive you to the cross, to Christ, to find an answer for your affliction? Or are you going to harden your heart? And so he comes. Now I want to go to the second part. We have the affliction where this man understands that his son is about to die. Now... He acknowledges it, and he comes to Christ in verse 47. He went to him, and he implored him. Have you considered that when somebody comes to Christ, in this process of faith, we come with the understanding of affliction. We don't come with a prescription and ask the Lord to prescribe a certain... We come begging. This acknowledgement is rather a, 
a, an imploring. We have a nobleman. We have someone who, who is not just your, your, uh, you know, your, your common field hand. No, he's a nobleman. And he has means and possibly a great household. But notice he does not send anyone. He comes himself. He comes to Christ and he begs him. He says he implored him to come down and to heal his son for he was at the point of death. This nobleman reached out to Christ and humbled himself. And indeed, he humbled himself. And it, the point is well made that even in the light of verse 48 where he says, Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. This did not turn the nobleman aside. He was able to take this rebuke, this, this um, maybe somewhat mild-natured rebuke that listen you want a sign you want me to come down and 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 listen here again we see this uh, we see the fallacy or the the problem of this man's faith he comes to jesus and says you come down come instead of instead of saying and just begging him lord do something for me i have this great need we have those accounts where where the blind men cried out to him and Jesus said to them, what would you that I do for you? That you would open our eyes. But that was here he's saying, he comes to Christ and says, come down and heal him lest he die. You know, sometimes we pray like that, don't we? We come to the Lord with, with an understanding of our affliction, but we already know how it's supposed to happen. We know how it should take place, how the healing should, should go about. Prayer is not like that. Prayer is where we come to Christ with an acknowledgement of our affliction and a crying out and a pleading for help. But prayer is not a prescription where we prescribe the medicine. Sometimes it is done completely differently from what we would choose to do. And that is, I think, one of the reasons that we have this gentle rebuke here of the, of the Savior to him. Listen, I had to think of Naaman, the Syrian. In Second Kings, I think it's about, about chapter 5, where... Is it Elijah or Elisha? I think it's Elisha. Sends Gehazi and tells Naaman, oh, let's go down there to the Jordan and wash yourself seven times and you'll be perfectly healed from your leprosy. And what did Naaman do? Oh, he was angry. I am a captain in the Syrian army, I think was the thought in his mind. You should come out and wave your hand over me or, or touch me or something. Are there not cleaner rivers in my homeland than that muddy Jordan? And he would not. This is maybe similar to that, in that he said, come and heal my son. And so the rebuke is, you want me to come 
and do a sign in front of you. You want an indication, maybe, of my ability to come. But interestingly, the nobleman was a man of noble character. He said to him, Sir, come down. (laughs) Sir, please come. My child dies. Come. Sir, come down before my child dies. He was persistent. He was persistent. He, he had just received a mild rebuke that, you know, unless you people, and I think what Jesus was saying, that word you is plural, and the word people is in italics, meaning that it wasn't part of the original text, and it indicates that, you're, that, that the people in general, there's a, that you're known for this. You Galileans are known to not, to, to not really be interested in me unless I give you a sign. That's the nature of you people, he says. You at large, not just you personally, but, but your kind are known for this. Remember, these Galileans were at the feast. And they had seen the signs. And now when he came to them, he re- they received him. So it's, their reception was suspect. And so this nobleman, though, I believe came to him in faith. Notice what it says. When he heard that Jesus was coming out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, and was traveling to Cana, but he was not fixing to come all the way to Capernaum, this nobleman says, I am going to meet him. There was some degree of faith in this nobleman that came to Christ with his need. And so when we come, oftentimes, let us not rebuke even that little mustard seed of faith. We can move a mountain. And even though it may be, uh, it may be small or it may be somewhat not not 100% genuine, or how would I say? Maybe, maybe, it, is, maybe it is tainted with other things. Who of our faith, whose of our faith isn't tainted with other things? But Jesus said to him, after his persistence, he said, go your way. Your son lives. What a beautiful word. What a beautiful word. Here now is great power uttered. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed. Now, it simply says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And how did he, how did he demonstrate his faith? He went his way. Now, when the passage, I, I, want to, I want to just make this application to the believers here. If, you are, if, if there's a young believer here that struggles with whether or not he's saved, and that's a natural inclination for young believers. We struggle with, do I truly belong? Listen, if the Lord says, your soul lives then indeed your soul does live. If he says it, it is true. 
It is true. I want to ask you, do you has this man experienced anything yet? No. No. There's no experience yet in verse, in verse, um, in verse 50, except the reception of the Word. Consider that. There is still no experience except just having heard the Lord say, Your son lives. And he believed it and he went. And as he was now going down, interestingly, something had happened that he didn't know about. Oh, he believed it, but it was not confirmed. But 15 miles away, there was a miraculous cure. At the seventh hour, 15 miles away, particular hour, and it was not a, a, uh, it, it, was a it was a dramatic cure. It wasn't, it wasn't where he slowly got better and his fever went from 104 down to 103 and a half, down to 103, down to 102 and a half. No, it left him. His fever left him. It was, it was a miraculous instantaneous cure, I believe. It, was, it happened, by the way, at the seventh hour. And as, as this man, believing the word that he had received, he, he goes off toward home, and his servants, knowing that he would love to know how his son is doing, and, you know, ran and met him. And they met him and said, Your son lives. Now, who could have told the servants the same thing? The man. Really, he could have. Jesus said, my son lives. He could have said the same thing. And as he was now going down, in verse 51, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. That particular hour an instantaneous cure. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he believed, himself believed in his whole household. Now, let's talk about the experience here. So Jesus had told this man, your son lives. And the man believed it and went his way. Thy son liveth was believed and later experienced to be true. Listen. That is exactly what our faith looks like. We are living our lives based on the word of God that there will be a future recompense. There will be a future realization receiving as peter says the end of your sal- the end of your salvation the saving of your souls at some point the salvation of our souls will truly tangibly be realized we are simply called to go on our way believing what was said now the question i would like to ask here is what role does experience play in growing our faith. 
we make a strong argument that our faith is based on the objective truth of what God has said. Okay? What did God say? Your son lives. That's the objective truth. The subjective experience was realized when he met his servants. And they said, look, everything's fine at home. Your son is alive and well. He's completely recovered, etc., etc. What did that do for this man? I want to point out what it did for him. He simply takes and traces it back. Okay, when did this happen? And they said, well, it was yesterday at the seventh hour. We said, well, that was when I was having my conversation with Christ, you see. And then it says, and he himself believed and his whole household. Now, that's the subjective truth. That is where Christ said something. It was objective. It had already occurred. And then he experienced it whatever hours later that it took for him to meet his servants. And it was a huge blessing to his faith. Now, we know that the experience came after the word. Right? Christ said it. The experience followed. That's always the pattern. That's always the pattern. Christ may not necessarily spell out specifically something that happens in your life, but it is the work of the Holy Spirit in us to bring it to subjective experience. Listen, if we don't have an experience, we are none of His. Think about it. There's all kinds of objective truth right here. But if it is not experiential, you are not His. If it's not experiential, but then, listen, if that experience that we have does not measure up to what He said, it's not right either. So the, the, the Word, that power that came from that from Christ, and it spoke things into existence that time and distance had no effect on. Isn't that wonderful? That is just like us today. 2,000 years after the fact that He ascended, time and distance means nothing to our Savior. He can speak power into your life right now. And that power Though it is objective, it is, it is recorded for us here. It is meant for us to be experienced and, and we should be excited about it and we should be passionate about this power, this, this work, this happening. And notice what these Samaritans said. We don't believe just because you said it, that objective truth. We have now heard him ourselves. That is the subjective truth, you see. That is, that is the experience part of it. And so, so sadly, I think sometimes, while we, we are 
We, we can hide behind the objective truth of what Jesus has said, but, but we are afraid to, make it, to, to, to tell people that I have experienced this. This is how it happened to me. And sometimes we are, as a church, we become anemic because of this. We're doctrinally sound and spiritually dead. Experientially dead. The two have got to be married. But we have, so, we have become so concerned about being doctrinally accurate that we've, we've just thrown experience to the side. And so how can we embrace these spiritual truths about Him dwelling within us, doing things for us, without going off into the weeds doctrinally. Because we always evaluate our experience, you see. When did this happen? Oh, it was at the seventh hour. Well, ask yourself, is this experience, when did, when did, God, when did God say this? And we go back into the Word and we, we evaluate our experience by what God has said. Actually, there's a really good example of this. One of the most miraculous miracles and experiences of the early church was in, in Acts chapter 2, where Peter had this profound experience along with thousands of others possibly. And how did they, how did they understand what was going on? Well, let me show you something. I did not write this reference down. I hope I'm, I'm close where I can find it easily. In Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit came down, remember? And Peter stood up and answering the accusation that these guys are drunk. You, you see what a profound and, and dramatic experience this was? Where people were talking and it was, it was profound. It, it was quite you would say, uh, unusual. Verse 16 of Acts chapter 2. I like it how it says in the old King James where it says, where Peter stood up, for these are not drunk, verse 15, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. That's kind of interesting that he would say it's too early to be drunk, guys. I would have thought there would have been much more spiritual things you could have said at that point. But the next verse makes up for it. But this is that. Okay? This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is how we understand the experience, Peter said. This is that, is what the, the King James says. My, the New King James says, this is what was spoken. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You see what he did. They understood the experience of Pentecost through the application and the truth of the scripture we we can do no less 
we must do no less. But, that, but let us not throw aside the need for experience and to make it personal, to make it ours, that my son might live, and how that my son in particular got saved, or how my soul in particular was saved. Just because we need to be saved experientially, it doesn't mean we need to to lose the doctrine of how that occurs, and how that it is proper, and how that God, by His Spirit, applies it to us. He is God, after all, with a myriad ways of bringing His Spirit to bear on our lives. But the principles are always, they they always control the experience. And so I I want to just, you know, we we have a hymn that that I have some, in, in times past, I have struggled a little bit with this hymn because I tend, as I said, I tend to go to the objective truth. I want, to, I want to err over here and not let my experience dictate. But let, let, me, let, me, let me point something out. I wrote this number down. Hymn number 266 is titled, He Lives. And here he says, the, you know, he, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near, etc., etc. He goes through the, this. But the, the, but the refrain is, he lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. And he talks with me along life's narrow way. I truly hope that is our testimony. That he walks with me and he talks with me as I'm journeying. That's that subjective work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then he goes on. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. And I think what what he is saying here is that that the, even His indwelling in sanctification is still imparting salvation to us. We're being saved from our sin practically, not just justified, but we're practically being saved from our sin. And then He says this last verse that I've often wondered and struggled with, it just, just a little bit. He says, You ask me how I know He lives. Well, we would go to the Bible and says, Well, 1 Corinthians 15, you see. But that's not what the song says. The song says, He lives within my heart. So when you come to somebody and you share the gospel, and you read 1 Corinthians 15, it says, here's the objective truth, Christ resurrected from the grave. But you know what makes it so powerful is when you say, I know He lives because He lives within my heart. I've experienced it. It's the truth. It's the subjective truth. The Holy Spirit lives here. You see, that's when it becomes powerful and it is powerful anyway. But when you are testifying This is what happened with the Samaritan woman. She testified that he told me everything I ever did. 
And it caused the citizens of Sychar to come out and investigate this man. Well then, I think they went out because of her experience. But later they said, well, we're not going to live our lives based on your experience. We've heard it ourselves. We own it. I'm not doing this because you told me you enjoyed it and it's yours. No, it's now mine, you see. And so I would just like to recommend this passage of Scripture as we see this progression of faith. He moved, he heard, him, he heard that he was, he was in the vicinity 15 miles away. He meets with him. He implores him and says, I have this affliction. I acknowledge this affliction. I implore you to come. And Christ says, well, I don't even have to be at your house to do this. I am not limited by time or distance. Go, your son lives. He believes it. He goes. And then as he experiences this salvation, it, it, just, it just becomes... A, a wonderful thing that is so, that is such a part of his life that his whole household believed with him. I don't know that I've seen this in the past. I always thought about the households of faith, those who came to faith via households. The whole households was like Cornelius or, you know, um, there's another one I can't think of right now. Yes, the Philippian jailer. But here, in John 5, we have it too. He came to faith, him and his whole household. Listen, fathers. Do we understand the implication of our devotion to Christ? Do we see how powerful that is? How God loves to redeem whole families? This man experienced a great salvation... And his whole household believed with him. I want to just close as we think of the outcome of this. This progression of faith, this outcome. His whole household believed. Consider Abraham and Joshua. What did God say about Abraham? He says, I know that he will command his whole household after me. Joshua 24, 15 says, he exhorts, Joshua is exhorting the people to come and follow. Follow Jehovah, follow Christ, follow God. He says, as for me and my household, he says, I'm speaking for me and my household. We will follow the Lord. Well, I rejoice in this passage of, of Scripture, I was challenged as we see this man coming to Christ and, and the implications and the pattern and the principles that are contained in this passage. And I had to wonder if, I'm sure it's true, that the Holy Spirit sovereignly put the nobleman's healing, the, the son of the nobleman's healing, right behind the Samaritan account. You know, that this is how, this is how it works. This is, this, is, this is the pattern. Experience 
follows the objective, powerful Word of God. And we evaluate that experience. Well, what about us? Are we willing to let God be God and the experience of another rejoice with Him? Embrace Him as a child of God if His experience is slightly different from yours? We, sh- we, we must. We must. He's God after all. You're not. But the patterns are there, you see. And they... Let, let's embrace those, um, those principles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close here today... Father, I pray that you would say those words many times. Your son lives. Father, we pray that you would do this among us. That our faith might progress from an investigative hearing and a possibility of salvation to an experiential redemption that is meaningful, that our whole households would believe. Oh, Father, we pray this would be our families. This would be the testimony of our families here. Lord, we we pray that you would do this among us. Help us to truly be humble by this passage and to recognize that you save. And we rejoice in your goodness through Christ. Amen.